The reading today is from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Ben, and thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us uh, today. Before I begin, I want to make sure I point one thing out. That that's, it's Frank's birthday today. He does not want people wishing him a happy birthday, so I am imploring all of you to say something to him about his birthday. Ask him how his day's been. How he's feeling about it. Just really dive deep. <laughs> Frank is leaving. Uh, yeah. So we're not going to sing. That's fine. We're not going to do that. But I just really want to make sure we all know that it's his birthday. Um, yeah, no, no. Please do not sing. We will not do that. Oh, man. There's, there's a revolt. <laughs> I've lost control. All right. I'll let you finish. Okay. All right, so next week when I'm not around anymore, you'll know why. Uh, just trace it back to that. Um, well, anyways, now shifting into a completely different subject. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and, and if, uh, if this is your first time here, uh, uh, one of the things we'll do at Redemption Church, uh, and the main way in which we will preach is by picking either a book or a section of scriptures and kind of just preaching through the whole thing. Um, and this year, pretty much all the way up until Advent, with the exception of maybe a few weeks in the summer, we are going to be preaching through the book of Acts. Um, and so far, what we have seen is just this incredible manifestation of the work of God in the early church. Um, even though it's entitled The Acts of the Apostles is the full name, uh, and I think Frank pointed this out right at the beginning, that it, it's almost better called The Acts of the Holy Spirit, The Acts of God. Because that's what we've been witnessing in this, is, is that God is working and moving and doing things through his church and through his people that is truly amazing, that is truly something exceptional, that is truly something uh, that, that is beyond kind of what we, our, our typical experiences in this world, that we are seeing God move in a mighty way through this book. And, and, and that's kind of, and I'm pointing that out because I, I want us to see that happening in the passage that we're reading today. We're covering kind of a lot of ground. But I think, it, it, and it's easy to kind of get into the weeds and forget what the main thing is. And that is that God is on the move. God is working. And even more important than that is that there is nothing that's going to stop him. There is nothing that is going to stop God and what he is doing See, God is moving, and what we're going to see in this story is that that is not negotiable. God is doing that. It has nothing contingent upon us. It has nothing to do with us. God does what he does. 
He is moving, nothing stopping him. And we are left with two choices. We're left with two choices in how to respond to him. Um, before we do that, I, I kind of want to get into what we are, uh, into the text of what we're going through. So last week we read um, Ananias and Sapphira. If you guys weren't here, it is, uh, it is a great uplifting uh, tale of two individuals who decided to lie to God and then they died. Um, so it was a, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, uplifting story. But it's really an amazing story about kind of the kind of kingdom that God is bringing, a, a kingdom without hypocrisy. We're going to talk about this here in a little bit, about how all these signs and wonders are pointing to this. But coming off of the tail end of that, we begin where we started this morning, what Ben just read. And I won't read it again, I'll just kind of summarize that even after this, there's the, this does change the way things are happening in the church. After this, we're going to see a, a significant ramp up in persecution by the religious leaders throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see a distancing of some people from the church, which we read just there in, in, in verse 13, that some people kept their distance. But we're also going to see some incredible acts that God does through his apostles. It says many signs and wonders were happening. People were being healed to the point where people were bringing the sick and those who had demons within them just so that the Peter's shadow would fall on them. I think what's interesting is sometimes the healings that happen through the apostles in some ways are greater than the healings that actually happen through Jesus. The power that's moving through the apostles is at least equal to the power that was moving through Jesus. The people were being healed. Wonders were being seen. Incredible things were being done through God in his people. And we see that amplified and amplified. Yet at the same time, in the last two verses that were read, we see, we see a startling uh, response by the religious leaders. Now, this isn't the first time they've reacted to what the, the apostles have said. This isn't the first time they faced persecution or faced kind of the questions of, hey, you guys really need to stop doing this and need to stop talking about Jesus um, the way that you are. But we definitely see a, a heightened um, response. So after this happens after they are kind of filled with jealousy over what God is doing through the apostles. What's always interesting, and we pointed this out in, uh, in um, our preaching collective that we'll do, kind of where we get together and talk through the passage, is that there's never a denial by the religious leaders that these things are happening. It's not that they're trying to disprove the healings or the wonders that they're seeing. They're just trying to stop the movement. And it's interesting the way that that can happen, the depth of the hardness of heart of some of the leaders of the day. But what they do is they, they put them in prison. They're jealous and they put them in prison. But later that night, while in prison, an angel of the Lord appears to the, the apostles, opens up the door and lets them out and says, I want you to go back to the temple and keep preaching my name. So in the morning, the, high, the, the uh, religious leaders gather the Senate. They gather kind of all of the people that are kind of in charge of uh, the Jewish community at the time. And they call for the apostles that they thought were in prison. They go to find them. They say, the door's locked. The guard's there. But the apostles are nowhere to be found. After that, somebody comes running in and says, no, they're, they're in the temple again. And they're preaching in the name of Jesus. So they go and they get them and they bring them before them. And I'll pick it up in verse 27. It says, and when they had brought them, 
them being the apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So even in this, we see two very different responses to the movement of God. See, on the one hand, this fear is trying to squelch this movement. On the other hand, we see this incredible boldness. See, we need to remember the drama that's happening in here. This is within probably still a year of when Jesus was killed. And these are the same people that killed him. And what we're about to see is that if it wasn't for the intervention of a wise old rabbi, the apostles probably would have been killed right now. That that was what happens after they said this. That, the, that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders were so enraged that they wanted to kill him and kill them. So we need to see that this wasn't just some flippant statement that Peter was making. He, they knew the consequences. They knew what was at stake. Yet they said, we have to obey God rather than man. We have to proclaim this. This is Jesus. This is our Lord and Savior whom you killed who has come to bring repentance and, and rescue to Israel. They say this knowing full well that they would likely die as a result of saying it. So you see these two stark responses to God's movement even there. After this, like I said, the, the religious leaders were enraged, so much so that they wanted to kill him and, and the rest of the apostles. But there is a man uh, named Gamaliel or Gamaliel. Uh, it sounds like he's not only a religious rabbi, but could have been a wizard from Lord of the Rings. Uh, so it kind of could have doubled as both. But this is, this is a, you need to know, this is a highly respected rabbi, the most respected rabbi of the day. You're going to meet a character here uh, in the next few chapters, a man named Saul, whom we know as Paul. Paul studied under Gamaliel. He studied under this man. This, this was like the elite. This was like the Harvard of rabbinic traditions of the day. This, this was a very well-respected man. And he says this, starting in verse 35. He said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. By the way, that was happening at the time that Jesus was born, at the time of the census. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And I will note, they took his advice for now. 
They took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Interesting way of letting them off the hook. Then they left the presence of the council, they, the, the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we see the, this drama play out. And the first thing we need to witness in this moment is that God is moving. God is working through this. It wasn't them who broke out of prison. God broke them out of prison, commanded them to do this. I have a strong suspicion that it was God moving in the heart of Gamaliel to say what he said when he did. God is working through the story. He is the main actor in this story. He is the main person. That brings me to our, our, our big idea that we're, we're kind of wrapping this around is that nothing stops God and that he is always moving. Before we even get to the responses, we need to understand what this means and how we spot it. I always, uh, so I, I'll read the Chronicles of Narnia to our kids at night. Um, we'll take, we're taking a break right now because they find it boring a little bit now. Um, but they'll, they'll, they'll come back. Um, <laughs> it's more for me that I get to read the Chronicles of Narnia. But one of my favorite pictures of Aslan, the main character, the lion character, which is kind of a, a, a metaphor for God or a, a, the person of God in the story, is that he is always on the move. It's something they reiterate over and over and over again. The Aslan, the lion, never stops moving. He's always roaming. He's always moving. Um, and I think that that, that was an intention uh, that was intentional by C.S. Lewis to kind of point out this fact that God is God is never staying still. He is always on the move. He is always going somewhere. But but it's important to note that he's not just going anywhere. He's going in an intentional direction. He is moving with intentionality. And we see this in the signs and wonders performed. He is ultimately moving us towards the kingdom. He is moving us towards the kingdom. These are what the signs and wonders are. We're going to see this over and over again. We're going to hear these words over and over again in the book of Acts. That signs and wonders were done. What these signs were, were signs of what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like. That is ultimately what we see in these moments. The wonders were showing that God is doing something different. God is doing something supernatural. God is doing something powerful in the midst of the natural. And we see kind of what the kingdom is like by the kinds of signs and wonders we're seeing in the book of Acts. And this is where God is moving. This is where God is going. I, so I want to actually kind of go back through some of these signs and wonders that we see because I think it helps illustrate the kind of kingdom that God is moving his people towards. First in Acts 2, 1 through 13, the, the curse of Babel is reversed. We talked about this. The curse of Babel was that language went from being this tool that draws people together, that helps people work together, that forms harmony and peace, to a tool that causes disruption and fear and separateness, that causes isolation. That was ultimately the curse of the Tower of Babel. And in Pentecost, we see that reversed. We see now a common language that we can come to with the Holy Spirit. We see that now it doesn't matter what language we speak, we have Christ in common. And that changes things. 
that shifts language from this position of separateness and differentness and, and difference to, to bringing us together, to bring harmony, to bring what uh, the Old Testament referred to as shalom, this, this incredible peace. So we see Babel reversed. And that's the, kind of the first main sign and wonder we see uh, within the early church. Second, we see people repent of their sin. People repent of their sin. We need to know that this is not a natural thing for people to do. For people to recognize that they are sinners and that they are in need of something bigger. That they are in need of somebody else to forgive them. But we see after Peter's sermon... He gives this incredible sermon, and really it's actually not even that incredible of a sermon. He's basically quoting some scripture saying, hey, you killed Jesus, you need to repent. It's actually probably not a great uh, um, argumentative technique. Yet 3,000 people, it says, repented and turned and joined in the church. So not only do we see this vision of the kingdom in which Babel is reversed, and language works together for the good and for the shalom of people. But we see a, a place where sin is repented from, where sin is healed, where people are forgiven, where mercy abounds. See, in Acts 3, sickness is healed. The lame beggar is healed. He walks again. He has light, he, he's able to move again in a way that he hasn't been able to move his entire life. So we once again, we see a vision of the kingdom. This is a sign of what the kingdom is going to be like. Sickness will be healed. It will be no more. The poor and the widow are taken care of. We see in Acts 4, 32 and 30 through 37. So earlier, um, just, a little, just a few weeks ago, we talked about this. The fact that everyone was taken care of. There was not need within this community. They all kind of brought their resources together in a generous way. They did it out of their own desires. They did it out of their own will to make sure that nobody lacked for anything. Which is, once again, a sign and wonder of the kingdom. Because we've lived long enough in this world to know that that is just not the case, typically. That is not the way the world works. So we're seeing something unique there that the poor and the widow are taken care of. In Acts 5, 1 through 11, which is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see that sin and hypocrisy are judged. I, I'm so glad that Frank uh, pointed out that this story that we see is also a sign and wonder of the kingdom of God. The fact that after lying to God, they are, they are basically wiped out. Now, I, he, I'm glad he made the point that this is not necessarily normative, that uh, we don't just die from lying to God right away. But this is, some, this is something that shows, once again, the values of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is being like, where God is moving his people to, a place where sin and hypocrisy are judged. And although that is, in some ways, frightening, and that should be a little frightening for us, for those who have been oppressed, those who have been hurt, those who have been kind of uh, uh, become victims of this world, the fact that there is, in fact, justice for the oppression, the sin, 
the victimization within this world is good news in the kingdom of God. That sin is judged, that evil does not go unchecked. So sin and hypocrisy are judged. And this last one is that men and women live fully alive. I love this, this idea. It comes from a, a man named Arrhenius. He was a, uh, one of the early church fathers. Um, and he has this quote that he says, The glory of God is man fully alive. And this is kind of what we're experiencing. It's amazing to see the boldness, decisiveness, the joy that the apostles show in the midst of all of this stuff. They rejoice in suffering. They, they take care of one another. They are not duplicitous in their mind. They are living fully alive. I love Mark Labberton has this, uh, I, in his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, is, he says what the dangerous act of worship is, is waking up to God. And that's kind of what we see in these apostles, that they have woken up to God and what God is doing in this world. They're able to live as fully alive. Once again, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the very last book called The Last Battle, towards the end when they're basically, it's kind of this heaven um, vision of what heaven and the new earth is like. And they're all traveling further up and further in is the mantra that they keep saying, further up and further in. And what they realize is they're looking around and they're experiencing this world in a way that was out of the shadows. They call it, they refer to the old world as the shadow lands. That now they're escaping the shadowlands. They talk about how even if they tried to feel fear, they couldn't. They're looking around, they're seeing mountains in a way that they've never seen them before. And it's not because they look different, it's just that they look like they're not in the shadows. This is the life that God is ultimately calling us into. This is the vision of the kingdom that God has for us. This is where God is ultimately moving his people. So when I say that God is moving, it's not just some arbitrary movement, but God is moving with intention towards the new earth, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, this new kingdom that he is forming through his church. God is moving, and nothing is stopping him. So with that in mind, I think now let's take a step back and look at the two ways that people respond to him. And there's really just two reactions, and I'll I'll tell you what they are now, and then we'll kind of dive into them. You are either going to oppose God and his movement, or you are going to join him. Those are the two two choices that people have. Those are the two responses that we see in this story. That you either see opposition to this, and what happens to the opposition of this, or you see the joining of this. And I want to look first at what happens when people oppose God's movement. We even see it here. Um, There's three distinct ways that I see this happening. Um, the first way that people oppose God's movement is they try to ignore God's movement. They just kind of pretend that it's just not happening, or they don't invest it, investigate it. They, they just kind of want to say, okay, that's happening over here, and we're going to keep our distance. See this in verse 13. It says this, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So they might have a respect for what they saw over there, but they don't want to go anywhere near it. They just kind of wanted to ignore it. They just kind of wanted to pretend like this wasn't happening, that this was just going to go away at some point in time. 
reminded me of kind of the way I would treat my check engine light in uh, college. Um, I'm not great with cars or anything like that. And the fact that you have to do any maintenance to them just annoys me, which I'm, like, I'm not saying, I'm saying these are all things wrong with me. Um, but what would happen is I'd be driving down the road, I'd see the check engine light come on. And all of the excuses as to why I don't really want to go take my car in to find out what's going on would flood through my mind. I'm like, ah, it's probably not something that big of a deal. Uh, I really don't have time this week to do that. Um, it could be really expensive, and I just can't absorb that right now. I just don't want to do it. You know, things, excuses like that. And then the check engine light would go away. Just magically go away. And in my mind, and I knew that this wasn't actually true, but I'm like, see, it fixed itself. <laughs> the radiator's fine. Transmission's fine. The check engine light would go on, and I would think that it was something, okay, I ignored it, it went away, this is fine. The reality was, that didn't fix the problems. Cars don't actually fix themselves. You need mechanics to fix cars, um, which I learned the hard way, you know, when the transmission would go out, or the radiator would go out, or something like that, some big thing. And the, the mechanic would always ask me, well, did the check engine light come on? Well, yeah, it came on about five different times, then I ignored it, then it came back. I think sometimes we can treat God's movement like this, like we'll see things, we'll witness things and experience things that are like a check engine light, saying, hey, there's something here that you need to pay attention to, that you need to be listening to, that you need to investigate more, that you need to actually come and face. And one of the ways that we'll respond to that is just ignore it. And this is how they responded initially. Many of them just tried to ignore it. They said, yeah, we see the healing going on. We see these apostles being bold. We know all this stuff is happening, but I really just don't want to deal with it for so many different reasons. And what we find is that there is no ignoring God. In the same way that I couldn't ultimately ignore the problems that were in my car, we can't ignore God. Someday we will have to face him. Someday we will have to face the reality of what God is doing in this world and in this movement. And we, you know what? Even if we go all the way through our life and we die never facing it, what the Bible says is the moment that we die, we will face it square on. We will face the reality of who God is, what he is doing in this world, and our lack of addressing it earlier will become problematic at that time. That we can try in our opposition to God's movement, and they can try in their opposition to God's movement to ignore it, but ultimately it is something that can't be ignored. The next way we see them trying to oppose God's movement is to silence and hide God's movement. This is ultimately what they tried to do. See this in verse 18. So after they were filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Later in verse 28, they said, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you tend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then even later in verse 40, when they let them off the hook by beating them, it says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I think that this is another way that we try to oppose God. We just try to silence it. 
we, we will confront it. They confronted it. They, they realized that this is something that we need to deal with. But the way they dealt with it is they, they tried to silence it. They had tried to hide it. They tried to, to kind of sweep it under the, the, the bush, or I don't even know what that metaphor is. The rug, there it is, or the bush. <laughs> if you have a lot of plants in your home, you can sweep it under the bush. <laughs> uh, so, um, so, yes, so sweep it under the rug, if you will. Um, I mean, Jesus responds to the Pharisees to this. So when, when, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, and he is, you know, people are throwing palm fronds down and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees approach Jesus and say, hey, you've got to keep these people quiet. They need to stop. And what does he say? He says, if I were to stop, even the rocks would cry out. There is nothing that can stop either God nor the praise of God by his creation. So even in their attempts to silence and hide God's movement, ultimately we see that this is incapable of stopping God's movement. The last thing we see in opposition is that they try to destroy God's movement. In verse 33, which I didn't read, but I'll read now. Say this. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill them, and they probably, I, I'll reiterate this, they probably would have if it wasn't for Gamaliel. Guys, they had just killed Jesus for this very reason. They tried to destroy God's movement. They tried to destroy this. They thought if we can just kill them all, if we can disperse them all, if we can make them in fear, this thing will go away. What's interesting is that this shows the uniqueness of God's movement because even Gamaliel points out that there were other movements that they did this very thing and it worked. That they did destroy those movements. They don't have disciples of Theodos or Judas the Galilean around anymore. That just stopped. But this is a different kind of movement. One that can't be destroyed. And so one of the questions, before we talk about what it looks like to join God's movement, is asking the question, I think it's important to ask the questions like this when we're reading the Bible, is ask, why are they doing this? Is that the questions of motivation. What is at stake in destroying this movement, in opposing this movement? What is at stake in saying that this movement no longer is something we can support or even let happen? We have to ask what is motivating this behavior. And I'll say this now, and, and we'll come back to this in a little bit. Ultimately, the reason they do this was not because of ultimately a theological problem, but because what Jesus did was a direct affront to their power and influence and position in society. It's because ultimately they realized that if what Jesus did was real, and if what Jesus said was true, they could no longer continue living the way they were living. We need to know that our idolatries run deep. That the motivating factor for ignoring God's movement is almost always that we just don't want to give up our idols. We just don't want to give up our power. We don't want to give up the influence. We don't want to give up our lifestyle. Because we know what Jesus is calling us into. It's something, yes, better, but something challenging. It's something harder. 
something different. And so, we see one response is to oppose God. And although you see, ultimately, a lot of people do take the second option and join him, the overwhelming majority still oppose God. Both in the book of Acts and now. That the comfortable position is to try to oppose what God is doing. Is to either ignore it, or silence it, or destroy it. That is what we try to do when confronted with the reality of who God is. Now on the other hand, we see the second option play out. That you can, you can oppose God, but you can also join God. This is the choice that the apostles made and the, and, and the rest of the followers make. They chose to join God's movement. And it's really remarkable seeing the difference. Would you see, it with, uh, and this was the Sadducees for the most part driving this story, is even when they went to arrest Peter and the apostles, they did it, they did it subtly because they feared the people. They, they, they did this in such a way to kind of be political about it. The apostles were not being political about anything. They were not caring how this was coming across. They didn't care what implications it would have for their well-being. They lived with boldness. They lived without fear, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. You see, even in their character, even the way they come across in the story, there is a stark difference between those who oppose God and those who have chosen to join him. And so I think what we see in this, this uh, story is what it looks like to join God's movement as well. Not just what does it look like to oppose God's movement, what does it look like to join God's movement. And the first is that they were available to God's movement. They were available to what God was doing. It's important that we see this particularly in the way God uses Peter and the other apostles with healing and with signs and wonders. The healings weren't the result of them conjuring up something or pushing something. They were just available to God when God was choosing to move. They weren't advertising in the streets saying, come for a healing. They were just walking. They were just living their lives, and God was working through them. They were available to the movement of God. And I want to just, just kind of a side note about what's going on here, because hey, we're going to see this idea of signs and wonders and healing and other things like that, things that, quite frankly, we just don't experience uh, a lot in the modern-day church. And so I want to address kind of why we're seeing it and how to best understand it real quick. But, but it, I think understanding it through the lens of availability helps. Um, there's a, there's a, a pastor in, I believe it's Oklahoma, named Sam Storms, and he wrote this. The Holy Spirit wants to be pursued but refuses to be pushed. This is the balance that we find in this. This is the tension that we're going to have to hold ourselves in. Because honestly, so my natural self is to basically disbelieve that these supernatural things are still happening. Like at best, I'm like, okay, this was something that happened in the early church, but you know, we're a modern society. (laughs) We're a society of science. This isn't the way this happens anymore. And I have to confront this reality in my life. God is not tame, and God does what he wants. We need to know that God can and will and is 
doing supernatural, miraculous things now through his church. I need to rest, I need to be open to that. I need to know that. Sometimes I think the reason we don't see that in our church is our lack of availability to its power, to its presence. That God is wanting to do miraculous things in his church. We are just not available to it. And that's something that we need to confront. If we are joining in God's movement, that means that we are available to the movement of God when God chooses to move. Now, there is the other side of it, and there's kind of two extremes. Either we just kind of don't accept that that's actually something that can happen now, and therefore we're not available to it, or we misunderstand the way God works. I think that's the other side of this. This idea that we are trying to push the Holy Spirit to fit our agenda. And this is the tension that we have to hold ourselves in. We have to, on the one hand, be available to the movement of God, yet know that God moves when he wants and how he wants. That is the way God moves and works. And secondly, and I want to make this clear, that this is not normative. The normal way in which God works is through what we like to call the natural, naturally supernatural. That God works through the relationships we have. He works through our vocation. He works through our families, our parenting, our friendships. That is the normal way in which God works. God works miraculous ways in unique situations. So we hold this tension that on the one hand we are available to God's movement, where on the other hand we never think that we can contrive God's movement. We never think that we can just push God into a scenario where he's forced to heal a bunch of people or forced to prophesy into a, a certain situation. That, that is an equal misuse and misunderstanding of the way the Holy Spirit works in this world. So we have to hold these tensions. So, so I, I, I kind of want to, that's kind of a side note, but I think it's important to, to note that because we're going to be confronted with the realities of healing and signs and wonders throughout the book of Acts. And every time we are, I hope on the one hand we're asking ourselves, are we available in faith for God to do that through us? Yet at the same time, understand that this is not something we can push. This is something that God does when he chooses to do it. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 115.3 where it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I just love that. It says, it's our God in the heavens. He does what he wants. I remember there's a, a, my son Hayes, it was like a year ago, he had found out he couldn't do what he wanted to do, and uh, I wasn't there for it, but Stephanie uh, walked in kind of on him, uh, sitting on the steps saying, I just want to do what I want to do. That's, my, that's Hayes, our, our second child. He's like, I just want to do what I want to do, which is funny, coming from a four-year-old at the time. But I think that that's our hearts, like we just want to do what we want to do. Well, the only person who can say that is God. He just wants to do what he wants to do, and he's just in doing that. God does what he wants. So joining God's movement means that we have an availability to God's movement. Secondly, that we are witnesses to God's movement. You see in verses 5, 29 through 32, this incredible boldness that the apostles have. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They were witnesses to God's movement. Now, I want to I show a picture of something up here. If you'll put the picture of something up here. Okay. So uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I got to go to Nashville, Tennessee. And we had been wanting to go see some of our friends for a long time. These are all of our college friends. For years, we've been trying to plan this trip. Finally, we were able to do it. And while I was there, I kid you not, I had the best donut I've ever had in my life. I've been accused, some, sometimes this is a compliment, sometimes this is an accusation, that every sermon I preach has something to do with tacos, and that seems to be the takeaway. So I'm moving away from tacos this sermon, and I want to highlight another great piece of uh, culinary delight, which is the donut. This donut is called the King Kong. It has bacon on top, this incredible maple, like, uh, uh, um, icing on it. These are called cronuts. So this is croissant dough rolled into a donut. So it's fluffier than normal. It's obviously rolled in sugar. And it's much to our delight, which we didn't know at the time of buying this, this is filled with this like semi-sweet cream cheese filling. And I like, I'm not joking. It was the best donut I've ever tasted. It was somehow this perfect balance between saltiness, dough, and sweetness to where the sweetness was always present but never overwhelming. It was just this incredible thing. And like when I came home from Nashville, I didn't talk about the city. I didn't even talk about my friends. I talked about this donut. Like I was a witness to this donut. Now, first off, I'm doing something very cruel to you because I'm showing you this donut, but there is no way you guys can go get this donut after church. I'm sorry. It's at Five Daughters Bakery, it's only in Nashville, and this is cruel. I get that. But I can tell you about this. You guys might be even interested in this donut. I doubt that you guys are going to go from here telling everybody about how wonderful this donut was. Because there was something different between learning about something and witnessing something. I was a witness to this donut. (laughs) And because of that... I, in bold proclamation, shared with everybody the power of this donut, which I know doesn't say great things about me. Okay, we can take the donut down. See, this is something that's important to note about people who join God's movement, particularly them. Like, they didn't just hear about the resurrection. They witnessed the resurrection. They were there when Jesus died, and they saw him when he rose again. They talked with him. They felt him. They knew that he was real. They were witnesses to the power of God. And because of that, they proclaimed what they saw with boldness. This is what it means to join God's movement. And I can tell you the reason why I proclaim God's truth with boldness is not because I've studied it, it's not because people have told me about it, but because I have experienced the power of his resurrection. I've experienced the power of his victory over sin. I've experienced the power of his mercy and his forgiveness. 
I have seen him heal relationships. I have seen him heal people. I have seen people come from death into life as a result of being a part of this movement. I have witnessed that. When we join in this movement, we are witnesses to that power. We are witnesses to the power of God's resurrection and healing. And because of that, we proclaim him with boldness. That is what it looks like to join in God's movement. That's why we see this boldness. They're not talking about something they heard about. They're talking about something they witnessed. So not only are they available to God's movement, not only are they witnesses to God's movement, but ultimately they rejoice in suffering for God's movement. This is what it means to join God's movement. They rejoice in suffering for God's movement. At the end of this passage, it says this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We need to remember something. The kingdom of God is in direct opposition to the kingdom of man. I think, it's a, it, once again, it's an important question. Why, what motivated their joy? What was it that was motivating them to rejoice in the suffering for Christ? Suffering for the sake of his name. Because honestly, the idea of suffering should be a little jarring. There's a part of us, even like intrinsically, that tries to avoid suffering. Our nervous system is built into our body so that we know when something's suffering so that we can avoid it. There's a reality of this. So when we see them rejoicing in God's suffering, we have to ask, why? Why would you ever rejoice in suffering for Christ? And it's because they understood what was at stake. They understood what was happening. The kingdom of God, the movement of God was in direct opposition to the kingdom of man. You know, we were talking the other day um, just about just this reality. And, and, and I think it's important for us to remember that there is no system in place, both large-scale systems, economic systems, political systems, cultural systems, all that stuff, to our own personal system that is ultimately okay with God being the king. There is no system that's okay with that. Because God being the king means that we are not the king. It means that other things are not the king. It means that we cannot worship our idols and fall in line with those and worship God. They are in direct opposition. So when they were suffering with Christ, what they realized is that in those moments, they were with God's movement. They were in joy there. They rejoiced in that because they knew that in those moments when they were suffering because the world opposed them, that meant that they were suffering because they were with God. They were going in the same direction as God. They were working in the same way as God. And there is a deep and abiding joy in that reality. They rejoiced in the suffering because ultimately it shows them that they were being Christ-like. We need to remember that nothing is stopping God. See, that, that's, what, that's what's happening throughout this story. Is that despite all the opposition we see, 
No matter how many people they kill, no matter how many people they beat, no matter how many people they silence, within two to three hundred years, this religion goes from being by a bunch of, uh, you know, redneck, far, like, like nobodies in the middle of nowhere, Rome, to being the national religion of Rome. It spreads that fast, that quickly, and hasn't stopped since. God's movement is moving, God is moving, and there is nothing that is stopping him, not then and not now. And so we have to ask this question, and I'm going to close by just asking you this question. Because this is the question that we all have to face in the midst of this reality, this non-negotiable truth that God is moving. And that is, are you going to oppose him, or are you going to join him? And my prayer and hope this morning is that if you have been opposing him, that you would stop. You will not win. You will not succeed. So I'm begging you to join him. Join him in faith. Repent and believe that this is true. Turn from your idols and come to know the good and true king. I want to pray and then we'll, we'll continue. Lord Jesus, I, I, I pray that this is something, God, that you are doing in our midst. God, that we are remembering ultimately what it means to follow you. God, that those of us who have been opposing you, God, I pray that we would stop. I pray that we would turn in repentance towards you and realize that there is only victory in life if it's victory in you. God, I pray for those of us who have joined you, Lord, yet still struggle to follow you. Struggle to be available, struggle to be a witness of you, struggle to rejoice in the suffering that comes from being a part of you, God. I pray that we would see the bigger picture of your movement. Lord, I pray that we would remember where you are moving us to, Lord, and delight in that, delight in suffering for the sake of that reality. God, we ask you this, Lord, and pray this in your name, amen. Right now, we're going to continue.